This message comes from NPR sponsor Rosetta Stone, an expert in language learning for 30 years. Right now, NPR listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership to 25 different languages for 50% off. Learn more at rosettastone.com NPR. According to the Center for Biological Diversity, more than one million species could go extinct in the coming decades. And when a species goes extinct, there's consequences for our entire ecosystem. The effects can be dire for those that depend on those species to survive. It's been 50 years since Congress passed the Endangered Species Act in 1973 to protect plants and animals in the U.S. from extinction. Over 99% of the more than 1,600 species listed as endangered or threatened have survived. But the work to protect our nation's biodiversity is far from over. Just last month, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service announced that it was delisting 21 species from the act due to extinction. It included one species of bat and 10 kinds of birds. To mark the 50th anniversary of the landmark legislation, we present our series, SOS, Save Our Species. Throughout the series, we discuss endangered keystone species and what it takes to save them. But 50 years later, what has the Endangered Species Act accomplished? And how should we think about the next 50 years of conservation? We get into all those questions after this short break. I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. Stay with us. We've got a lot to get to. This message comes from NPR's sponsor, Teladoc Health. There are lots of reasons for wanting to be healthy. Family, work, living a fuller life. Teladoc Health understands. Whether you have diabetes, high blood pressure, or just need to manage your weight, Teladoc Health can help. Visit TeladocHealth.com slash What's Your Why for more information. That's T-E-L-A-D-O-C Health slash What's Your Why. This message comes from NPR sponsor, BetterHelp. When you keep your stress bottled up, it can eat away at you. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to make them better. Try BetterHelp Online Therapy, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp at betterhelp.com slash NPR today to get 10% off your first month. This message comes from Capital One, offering commercial solutions you can bank on. Now more than ever, your business faces unique challenges and opportunities. That's why Capital One offers a comprehensive suite of financial services, all tailored to your short- and long-term goals. Backed by the strength and stability of a top-10 commercial bank, their dedicated experts work with you to build lasting success. Explore the possibilities at CapitalOne.com slash commercial, a member FDIC. Joining us for this conversation is Michelle Nyhouse. She's a science journalist covering climate change and conservation. She's also the author of Beloved Beasts, Fighting for Life in the Age of Extinction. Michelle, welcome to the program. Hello, thank you for having me. Also with us is Robert Fishman. He's a professor of law and environmental affairs at Indiana University, Bloomington. Robert, it's great to have you. Thank you for having me, Jen. And Jamie Rappaport-Clark. She's the president and CEO of Defenders of Wildlife. That's a nonprofit focused on conservation. She's also the former director of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. Jamie, welcome to the program. Thank you. Happy to be here. Robert, let's start with the basics. What is the Endangered Species Act and what does it do? 
The Endangered Species Act that we are currently celebrating the 50th birthday of uh, was uh, the third in a series of attempts uh, by Congress to uh, enact programs uh, so as to avoid human-caused extinctions of our fellow travelers on planet Earth. The 1973 enactment, which is sets up the structure that we more or less implement today, was the, um, it was the outcome of decades of uh, experiments in conservation, uh, starting with uh, state laws that uh, limited hunters and their ability to take declining species, and then the federal government about 100 25 years ago, stepped in, uh, began to use those tools and innovate other tools, including the use of uh, international treaties to conserve species that migrate uh, between national boundaries, and also things like environmental impact analysis to uh, try to look before we leap to require uh, federal agencies and some other parties to scope out what the consequences of a proposed action might be. Jamie, just very clearly lay out for us the difference between a species that's endangered versus one that's gone extinct. Sure. So extinct is gone. Uh, extinction is forever. Uh, once a species is, has gone extinct, uh, there's no going back. You can't unring the bell. A species that's endangered or declared endangered is in danger of going extinct throughout all or a significant portion of its range, but we still have time. We still have time to turn that species around and recover it so that it can be secure and thriving in its landscape um, in this country. So with endangered or threatened species, we have time, and that's what the endangered species was set up to do. Is there a distinction between a species that's endangered versus one that's threatened? Yes, uh, and it's mostly status. So uh, a threatened species is threatened with becoming endangered, and an endangered species is truly in danger of extinction. So it's a degree of endangerment. Uh, you have more flexibility with threatened species. By the time species are endangered, they're in dire straits, and it's an all-hands-on-deck to, to try to address the threats to the species before they go extinct. Michelle, what's the current process for deciding that a species is endangered or threatened? Well, it can happen one of two ways. It can originate within uh, the two agencies that uh, are responsible for endangered species, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and or the National Marine Fisheries Service, uh, or, as is increasingly common, uh, any citizen or organization can petition to list a species, and the Endangered Species Act has some pretty tight deadlines uh, for the agencies to respond and make decisions on those petitions. So when you hear about uh, environmental groups or conservation groups suing the Fish and Wildlife Service over endangered species, very often they are suing over the agency uh, having missed those tight deadlines set by the act. We got this question from one of you. What happened to animals that went extinct before humans existed? Why do humans feel like it's our responsibility? Political interests? Well, Robert, I want to come to you because the Endangered Species Act is speaking specifically, if I understand it correctly, about animals or plants that face extinction due to human actions. Is that correct? I, I think it's correct to say that was 
the motivation for enacting the Endangered Species Act and other statutes. Uh, but the act itself does not limit listings to just those species who face direct threats from humans. Uh, and, uh, you know, often humans play a role to uh, amplify natural threats in other circumstances, uh, particularly species that are threatened with loss of habitat from climate change. It's very, it can be very difficult to untangle. Well, is that a natural cause or a human cause? I think the key thing to keep in mind is that all species that have ever ex existed have gone extinct. Uh, all species, as far as we know, have a 100% chance of going extinct. And what the Endangered Species Act is, is addressing is time scale. It's addressing an uh, accelerating rate of extinction that is clearly traced to uh, things that we as humans are responsible for doing. And the idea very much is that as a nation, we are interested in choosing to restrain ourselves, choosing to save certain things as a way to say who we are as a people. We got this from a member of the Wedding Text Club. What happens when an endangered species is reintroduced and it decimates another endangered species? I've noticed that a lot of times the Endangered Species Act is limited and that it offers no solutions beyond just introducing something back into the environment, kind of like the mentality that we'll deal with it when it happens rather than being proactive. Michelle, your thoughts? Well, I think, the, I mean, those are very, uh, those are very complicated cases when one endangered species is threatening another. It's, I, I seriously doubt that was something that the architects of the Endangered Species Act ever expected that we would encounter. But uh, the Endangered Species Act is informed by science, and those are situations that should be foreseen by the research that is done on species reintroductions before they happen. You know, we should be looking at are there other vulnerable species in the area? What, what will be the consequences of this reintroduced species doing what it's supposed to do, just trying to make a living in an area? Will it be preying on, a, on another extremely isolated, vulnerable species? Um, so I think those cases are, are perhaps a reflection of, the, of our situation as a society, the biodiversity crisis that we're in, that we have so many vulnerable species, rather than a reflection of um, a flaw in the law or a flaw in, in the science that's informing the law. Jamie, anything to add? Well, I would say that the Endangered Species Act is incredibly flexible, and I totally agree with Michelle. It is a science-driven, science-informed law. Um, and when there are conflicts among species, uh, the Endangered Species Act is set up in a flexible way and allows for pretty ramped up collaboration uh, among states, the federal government, tribes, local governments, private individuals. And so it allows for science-based informed decisions to reflect the balance that's needed among the species. Um, and when we're reintroducing species back into the wild, back into historic landscapes, back into historic habitats where they once were secure and thriving, um, oftentimes, given what has happened to biodiversity in this country today, there are hiccups. Uh, but the Endangered Species Act allows for 
adaptive management and allows for informed science to uh, address those hiccups and um, balance out the needs of the species at risk. We're going to head to a quick break with this message we got from Katie. I'm a birder, and I have a fabulous bird uh, systems in my backyard, and I've been here for 23 years in Orlando. And the two birds that I have not seen in the past few years are the scrub jays and the red-winged blackbirds. And for me also, I have not seen my painted buntings. I, I would get a lot in the beginning of the years when I lived here, as well as the others, but nothing. Um, and I know it's due to overdevelopment. So anyways, that's my sadness uh, uh, in terms of species loss. Thanks for that message. More from you and our guests in just a moment. Stay with us. This message comes from NPR sponsor Progressive Insurance, where drivers who switch could save hundreds on car insurance. Get your quote at Progressive.com today. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Support for this NPR podcast and the following message come from Amgen, a biotechnology pioneer leading the fight against the world's toughest diseases such as cancer, heart disease, asthma, and osteoporosis. In a new era of human health, Amgen continues to accelerate the pace of change, operating sustainably and drawing upon deep knowledge of science to push beyond what's known today. With each decade, they reliably deliver powerful new therapies to patients. Learn more at Amgen.com. This message comes from NPR sponsor ServiceNow, the AI platform for business transformation. AI is only as powerful as the platform it's built into. Enter ServiceNow. It puts AI to work for people across your business, providing intelligent tools to help remove frustration and supercharge productivity. And all of that is built into a single platform you can use right now. That's why the world works with ServiceNow. Learn more at servicenow.com slash AI for people. This message comes from NPR sponsor Progressive. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit their website to get a quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, and their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. Then just choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. All that sitting and swiping, your body is adapting to your technology. Learn how and what you can do about it. I really felt like the cloud in my brain kind of dissipated. Once I started realizing what a difference these little bricks were making, there's no turning back for me. Take NPR's Body Electric Challenge. Listen to the series wherever you get your podcasts. Let's get back to the conversation with this message we got from Roy, who writes, I'm retired from the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and worked under the provisions of the Endangered Species Act for many years. The ESA is not just about animals. Plants are included in the act. That's a good thing because ecology is about all living things and their interaction with the environment. The weaknesses of the act include the recovery plans. They're sound scientific documents, but when completed, they get put on shelves to gather dust. I'd like to see enforcement of provisions that would require all federal agencies whose actions have environmental effects to implement recovery plans. We'll talk about some of the the act's shortcomings, but first, Jamie, how successful has the ESA been and and how is that success being measured? 
Well, you mentioned it at the top of the hour. The, the, the Endangered Species Act has been incredibly successful. It has a near-perfect track record at preventing the extinction of species. That's huge. Uh, there's no doubt that the, the, the vast majority of the 1,600 species that are protected by the ESA today would likely be extinct if not for the law coming in uh, to um, provide a framework for their to, to help them stabilize and, and recovery uh, and recover. So there's no doubt in my mind, at least in many, uh, the, the caller in particular, that it's, it's wildly successful. The problem, the challenges of the Endangered Species Act are increasing and they are, um, particularly as there's huge pressures on habitat, huge pressures on society. Um, one of the biggest problems with the Endangered Species Act today is funding. Uh, Defenders of Wildlife, our Center for Conservation and Innovation, did a, a study recently that showed that the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, one of the agencies charged with implementing the Endangered Species Act, receives less than 50% of the funds that are even necessary to support the recovery of species. So the Endangered Species Act isn't broken. It's not um, not working, it's starving. It, it does not have the funds necessary to implement the law as it was envisioned early on. And, and that's a huge challenge. Uh, we need to put a, a higher premium on saving nature in this country. Uh, the, the, the biodiversity challenges that we're seeing uh, is are critical for a healthy planet. We can't disconnect nature from humanity. And I think that's the tug of war that you're seeing today. Michelle, to your mind, what are the act's shortcomings? Well, I, I agree with Jamie that the act has been incredibly successful in preventing extinction. Um, but it was it it has not, and it was not designed to keep species healthy or prevent them be, from becoming endangered in the first place. So if, if, our, if the U.S. system um, for conserving biodiversity were a hospital, it would have a very large emergency room and basically not much else. <laughs> we don't have a lot uh, of resources or capacity in terms of preventive care. Um, and, and some people may not know that that the states are actually have have much of the responsibility for protecting what we think of as as common species, um, and their state wildlife agencies are chronically underfunded, um, and they really don't have the capacity to keep species healthy, keep them from becoming endangered in the first place, and therefore becoming much more expensive and much more difficult to restore to health. Hey, Robert, fifty years on from the implementation of the ESA, what efforts, if any, have there been to revisit the act and say, these are, these are some ways we could strengthen it or ensure it's funded the way it needs to be funded? Has there been any movement or was it just put in place 50 years ago and we've just been operating under the act as it, as it was originally written? Jen, in this respect, the Endangered Species Act uh, looks a lot like our other flagship environmental laws like the Clean Water Act and the Clean Air Act. Uh, they were enacted and refined and amended from about 1970 until the mid to late 1980s. At that point, uh, 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 concerns about the environment and conservation shifted from being bipartisan 
to being partisan issues. And 1990 really marks the end of significant updates to all of our environmental statutes, the Endangered Species Act included. So it is true that the Endangered Species Act, as it was conceived, is lacking certain features like the preventive conservation that Michelle uh, mentioned, but it, the, the inability of Congress to revise statutes also means that um, we're, uh, we're living with a, a disco-era uh, framework for endangered species conservation that doesn't take into account things like uh, climate change. Jamie, a large part of this, conser- uh, this conversation is the concern for biodiversity loss. When we say biodiversity, what are we talking about? Biodiversity is the holistic variety of all life on Earth, and it's absolutely essential to a healthy planet. It provides us with clean air, clean water, medicines, foods. Uh, So as I often say, so goes nature, so goes us. Biodiversity is so connected to a healthy planet, it's also connected to us as humans. And and the Endangered Species Act is uh, a law that Um, was on its face aimed at protecting the fabric of biodiversity, but it can't do it by itself. I mean, you've heard um, us talking about that. Um, So the biodiversity challenges, the escalating biodiversity crisis that this the, the planet's facing, but certainly the United States is facing, is showing um, systems that are just out of whack. It, it doesn't matter what you do for the individual species necessarily if you're not taking care of their habitat. Well, and, and, and just so biodiversity is that link. Quantify that for us a bit, if you can, Jamie. When we think about when the ESA was established 50 years ago and the state of biodiversity then in the U.S. and what it looks like today, how would you describe the difference? Orders of magnitude more dramatic. 50 years ago, we weren't talking about climate change. 30 years ago, we were hardly talking about climate change. Now, climate change is the leading um, impactor of what's happening to biodiversity in the United States. But then it's amplified by huge, significant changes. And so we have habitat loss and destruction. We have climate change. We have pollution. We have invasive species. And we have overutilization. Those five big factors are just amplified over the decades and getting much more dramatic, which is why we're facing crisis um, crisis, uh, crisis state at this point. I think it can be difficult for us to understand the consequences of biodiversity loss because there are ways using technology or if you are wealthy enough to sort of buffer yourself against those effects. But what do we lose when we lose species, wildlife, plant life, when our biodiversity gets upset? I'll give you a couple of really germane examples. Uh, Pollinators. We are losing bat species, a number of migratory birds, butterflies at alarming rates. Pollinators are absolutely essential to many of the food crops that sustain us today. They are essential for pollinating much of what the agriculture of this country is about. Without pollinators, we'll have a collapse in the agricultural industry for sure. Um, um, the, the native fishes that, that, that occupy many of the freshwater rivers in this country are signaling 
pretty significant habitat loss and massive water quality. Clean water in this country doesn't come out of our taps. It comes out of the healthy headwaters in, in clean, vibrant national forests. And so the connection of nature to um, uh, our own needs as a society is and you cannot decouple them. Yeah, Robert, how much should this conversation be framed as protecting endangered species for the benefit of humans versus simply being good stewards of the land? I think it's a, I think it's difficult to untangle those two. And um, I certainly think that uh, a lot of the members of Congress and the supporters of the Endangered Species Act, both in 1973 and today, take a very practical, utilitarian approach to uh, the sorts of reasons that Jamie talked about as to how we humans are dependent on nature's services provided by these species in order to live uh, thriving healthy lives. But that certainly is not the whole picture. I think underlying the Endangered Species Act in particular, and to some extent other environmental law statutes, is this notion that um, we have a responsibility to clean up our messes. And if we don't clean up our messes, we never really get to see just how much damage we do. It, it, it's, it's much more expensive and it takes longer to clean up our messes than it does to create them. Mm-hmm. And unless we're undertaking the cleanups, whether they're Superfund sites or their recovery of critical habitat for a species, uh, we, we don't have this sense of uh, needing to uh, 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 be responsible for our own actions. Uh, some of that is just a, a, a kind of golden rule. Um, and then, you know, there are others who are motivated by a sort of Christian creation care or a more transcendentalist notion of the oneness of, of people in nature. And uh, all of those motivations, I think, are reflected in both the legislative history of the act and in the actual terms and conditions of the law. We'll be back with more after this quick break. When we return, we discuss where plants fit into the picture of endangered species. Stay with us. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Bluehost. Try Bluehost Cloud, the hosting plan made for WordPress creators by WordPress experts. With 100% uptime, fast load times, and 24-7 support, your sites can handle high traffic spikes. Visit Bluehost.com. This message is brought to you by NPR sponsor, Lisa, in collaboration with West Elm. Discover the new natural hybrid mattress, expertly crafted from natural latex and certified safe foams, designed with your health and the planet in mind. Visit leesa.com to learn more. Let's get back to the conversation with this message we got from Dylan, who writes, Something that I see as an issue is the loss of tree varieties. I work with forests and see the gradual loss of species, but it's often hard to get people to realize this. At some point, there won't be a species to take up the slack. I'd like to see quicker action taken to return things like the chestnut tree. I'm not, I'm not certain how the Endangered Species Act might be used for that. You know, Robert, when it comes to plants, how does the Endangered Species Act treat the protection or the preservation of plant species? 
There, there are two major uh, programs within the Endangered Species Act that deal with protecting species that have been listed by the conservation agencies. The first program applies just to actions authorized, funded, and carried out by federal agencies. Those agencies have to ensure that they will not jeopardize the continued existence of any listed species, whether that Listed species as an animal or plant is irrelevant. Federal agencies have this duty imposed by Congress to ensure that they don't jeopardize the continued existence of those species. The other major program, though, is a program that does distinguish between animals and plants. It is the broader um, it, it is a program that applies to a broader set of people, not just federal agencies, but also state agencies, also individuals, corporations, and they are prohibited. We all are prohibited from taking actions that might do something that's called take a species. And uh, take has a very peculiar definition in the statute. It includes things like uh, kill capture a species, but also includes this verb harm. And the definition of what is harm has been very controversial. It can include habitat alteration if it significantly impairs uh, an essential behavioral characteristic of the species. But that prohibition applies only to the animals listed under the act, not to the plants protected under the act. And that has to do with a very old uh, legal categorization of plants as part of privately owned real estate and animals as uh, collectively owned wild things. I want to get to this email we got from Michael, who says the strength of the Endangered Species Act is its scientific foundation. Those who want to weaken the law and other science-based laws like it, such as the Clean Air Act, often try to find legislative and administrative ways to sideline the science. I organized successful efforts to defend that scientific foundation for years when I worked for the Union of Concerned Scientists. But it's a constant battle to keep science central to the ESA decisions. I'd love to hear a discussion of that tension. Jamie, I'll come to you first, speaking to that issue that Michael raises about keeping science central to the act. Your thoughts? Well, frankly, I, I couldn't agree more with him. Uh, it's, it's quite dumbfounding. There's a puzzling mismatch between the strong public support for the Endangered Species Act, the strong recognition by public about the importance of wildlife, the strong support for science-based decision-making, that's been the Endangered Species Act uh, uh, bedrock foundation for the last 50 years, and the high volume of political attacks on the law now occurring in Congress. It's a completely different, it's like we're living in alternative universes. The attacks in Congress that are now up over 50, I believe, at this point, in this Congress alone, are aimed at either anti-science or anti-rule of law. And that's what I think the caller's talking about the disconnect and the undermining of, of, um, of, of the science framework of the Endangered Species Act being um, taken over by politics. So um, biologists and these federal agencies that are making science-driven decisions to prevent the extinction of particular species, 
now have Congress that are congressional members that are imposing their political judgments in place of biological ones tied to species survival. And so there's a whole parade of individual species or um, policies that are being debated in Congress that have no business uh, being debated in Congress when you have a law that is framed in, in science decision frameworks. You know, I don't want to overlook the cost associated with saving a species once it's endangered. Michelle, why is this such an expensive process? Uh, well, as as we've t- mentioned before, one of the reasons is that uh, we are, as a society, waiting until species are endangered before we get serious about protecting them. Um, and so it becomes very expensive once a species is, is in such poor shape. It gets very expensive to, to bring it back to health. You start talking about very, uh, so to speak, heroic measures such as captive breeding and reintroduction. Um, and I think the cost could be dramatically reduced by, by acting earlier. And in fact, there is a, a bill in Congress, it's, it's somewhat miraculously a, a, a significantly bipartisan bill that's been introduced and reintroduced several times now that would give significant funding to state agencies in order to start doing more of this proactive conservation that would save us money in the long run. Yeah, I want to place us within the broader context of combating climate change and and supporting conservation efforts, because you would think those would fit very neatly together, Michelle, but that's not always the case. How are we seeing those efforts bump up against each other? Well, there are certainly individual cases where for instance, large-scale green energy developments um, can impact habitat for endangered species. And I think it's important for climate activists to recognize, and and I I say this knowing that um, many young activists are incredibly focused on on climate change and and uh, you know, admirably so. I really applaud the work of the youth climate movement. I also think it's important to recognize that if we solve the climate crisis, which hopefully we will, we have not yet solved the biodiversity crisis, unfortunately. Um, And so we do have to consider both of them um, when we're working as hard as we are working um, to head off the worst effects of the climate crisis. We also have to be thinking about um, not only protecting biodiversity, but but restoring it to the extent that we are able to, um, because that is going to protect the ecosystems that we depend on and, and ultimately protect the climate we depend on as well. Hey, Jamie, what are your biggest concerns around conservation as climate change worsens? Well, I, I agree 100% with Michelle. Uh, the escalating crisis of climate change and biodiversity are like flip sides of the same coin. We can't tackle one without tackling the other. Um, and um, the recent reporting that climate change is the number one cause of biodiversity loss in the United States is alarming at kind of epic levels at this point. And so tackling and understanding climate change, looking at alternative energy sources, looking at all the other threats that are causing species imperilment are important for sure. 
but the, uh, the importance of keeping climate change and biodiversity loss connected in the public debates and in the solutions uh, environment is critical going forward. You know, Robert, in uh, preparation for this conversation, you shared that what you think we need to do is extend the safety net beyond the Endangered Species Act. What would that look like in practice? Well, in, in practice, this is all about implementing what uh, M- Michelle described as preventive conservation. When Congress enacted the Endangered Species Act, it set a finish line. Uh, it 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 set a goal where we know we're doing the right thing as a nation if we're not causing extinctions. Uh, but it didn't provide uh, 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 preventive care. It did not um, enact uh, a statute to promote habitat conservation, to, uh, uh, to take steps to avoid things like the loss of the tall grass prairie that one of your, your callers mentioned. Um, and uh, there are a lot of ways we can do this. Uh, one is more money. Uh, I like that Jamie talked about the climate change and, and the biodiversity crises as flip sides of the same coin. The solutions may be flip sides of the same coin. The, uh, by far, the most impactful law Congress has ever passed to deal with the climate crisis has been a spending law. The Inflation Reduction Act of uh, 2022. Similarly, that uh, Recovering America's Wildlife Act that Michelle talked about, that is probably the most realistic short-term vehicle that Congress could enact to begin to provide the resources uh, to add to build the hospital around the emergency room that we currently have. That would be money directed primarily to states to reverse declining population trends among species that states have already identified as species that are slipping toward endangerment but are not yet there. Compared to the 1,600 or so species listed in the United States under the Endangered Species Act, there are 17,000 of these species, plants and animals, that states have identified as uh, sort of uh, on deck for listing. And uh, a good way to avoid those backlogs is to address preventive care by funding it in the states. We've got just a minute left here, Jamie. Really quickly, what solutions are you most excited about? Well, certainly I would be really excited if there were more money put at the biodiversity crisis. But I am I am very heartened by the collaborative partnerships that I see happening all over the country where people are coming together at the local level and focusing on solutions in their region where they, they're the experts in their region. And I, th- I believe that these partnerships are t- not only telling a story, but they're coming, uh, they're coming forward with really innovative, pragmatic, and thoughtful, enduring solutions. And that is going to be critical to solving this. I'd also love to see 
a bigger government approach to addressing the biodiversity challenge in this country. A national biodiversity strategy would set forward a national policy with goals and strategy that can make uh, biodiversity conservation an explicit priority for this country. That's lacking, and I would love to see that happen. That's Jamie Rappaport Clark. She's the president and CEO of Defenders of Wildlife. That's a nonprofit focused on conservation. She's also the former director of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. Also with us, Robert Fishman. He's a professor of law and environmental affairs at Indiana University Bloomington. And Michelle Nyhouse, a science journalist covering climate change and conservation. She's also the author of Beloved Beasts Fighting for Life in the Age of Extinction. Thanks to you all. Today's producer was Haley Blassingame. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening. Let's talk again tomorrow. This is 1A. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Homes.com. You don't just live in your home, you live in your neighborhood as well. So when you're shopping for a home, you want to know as much about the area around it as possible. Luckily, Homes.com has got you covered. Each listing features a comprehensive neighborhood guide from local experts. Everything you'd ever want to know about a neighborhood, including the number of homes for sale, local amenities, and even things like median lot size and a noise score. Homes.com. We've done your homework. This message comes from NPR sponsor Shopify, the global commerce platform that helps you sell and show up exactly the way you want to. Customize your online store to your style. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com NPR. Last year, over 20,000 people joined the Body Electric study to change their sedentary, screen-filled lives. And guess what? We saw amazing effects. Now you can try NPR's Body Electric Challenge yourself. Listen to updated and new episodes wherever you get your podcasts.